0: Well, in Romans chapter 14 and in verse 9, Paul writes, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. This past week was opening day for the 2012 baseball season. Oh, football is fine. Basketball will suffice on cold nights in March but welcome back baseball you're a good friend who's been gone for too long you know they say soccer is the world's game but as American poet Walt Whitman once said I see great things in baseball it's our game the American game and in the spirit of Walt Whitman I see great things In a baseball. This morning, I want to begin by drawing your attention to this leather sphere that we call a baseball. A baseball is nine and a quarter inches in circumference. It's two and seven eighths inches in diameter. It weighs five and a quarter ounces. A baseball contains a rubber core wrapped in tightly wound yarn. It's covered in cowhide, and it's held together by 108 stitches. But here's what's amazing about a baseball. Did you know a baseball contains 121 yards of 4-ply gray woolen yarn, plus 45 yards of 3-ply white woolen yarn, plus... 53 yards of three-ply gray woolen yarn, plus 150 yards of cotton yarn. Stretch out the guts of a baseball, and it extends 369 yards. That's 1,107 feet. That's nearly four football fields. Imagine, 1,100 feet of yarn are packed into this nine-inch sphere which perfectly describes this morning's text. The scope of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the earth stretches across time. It spans all of eternity. His words and deeds will be the topic of heaven. Their meaning will be forever explored and never exhausted. You see, no one's life before or since has created such far-reaching ramifications as the life lived by Jesus Christ. Yet like a baseball pack with yarn, one verse, Romans 14 verse 9, rolls up all of this amazing life and winds it tightly into a single statement. In just 23 words, none of which are more than six letters long. Here, the most remarkable life ever lived and its infinite implications get compressed into a brief single summation. The Holy Spirit spoke it The Apostle Paul penned it. The reason God's Son came to earth and fulfilled these ancient prophecies and lived a sinless life and died on a Roman cross and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and is coming again is explained to us in Romans 14 verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again that He might be Lord of both the dead and the living. All that Jesus said and did was to qualify Himself as Lord. He died and rose and lives to be King of creation, to be ruler of heaven and earth, to be boss of time and eternity. Jesus Christ is King of all kings, and He is Lord of all lords. Now given the contents of a baseball, you would think that the Braves would never get shut out. I mean, how can you miss hitting 1,100 feet of yarn? And yet you certainly can, can't you? Especially if it's compacted and it's approaching you at 90 miles an hour. And you can miss the implications of our text this morning. That's why today I'm going to sort of slow things down. I want us to focus on just this one verse. For here's a truth that you and I need to knock out of the park. To this end, Christ died and He rose and He lived again, that He might be Lord. You see, shortly after His birth, Jesus was paid a visit by foreign dignitaries. Matthew tells us that the wise guys rode into Jerusalem and they asked the Jewish authorities a question. They said, Where is He who has been born King of the Jews? You see, these mysterious magi, they were Persian priests. And they had been tutored by the Hebrew prophet Daniel. Daniel had predicted that the Messiah, He would come, a king, a deliverer. He would be born in the land of Israel. This king would rule the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Jesus lived His whole life under the shadow of this and other Old Testament prophecies. In fact, shortly before His death. Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. All the people held him as their king. Even in death, Jesus' claim to royalty overshadowed him. The plaque that Pilate nailed to the top of the cross, you remember what it read? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Understand this, Jesus didn't just come to earth to help and heal. He didn't just come to bless and better. He didn't just come to work miracles and show mercy. The Son of God was far more ambitious. Jesus came to this earth to establish Himself as King over this earth. Jesus came to rule the day. The Son of God is now Lord of every man and woman, boy and girl. And yet, too many of our contemporaries today miss this point. Oh my... Like Dan Ugla waving at a slider on the outside corner. Poor Dan. Folks today, even so-called Christians today, they whiff at the very reason Jesus died and rose and lived again. People think of Jesus as their very own tour guide through life. Oh my, it's His job to present various options so we can decide where we'd like to go. And then get us around safely. And then even make us comfortable on the way. Oh, folks don't mind being led around as long as they're in charge. But when somebody starts to set the agenda for you, when somebody else starts telling you what to do, that's when a lot of people are going to get off the bus and find another tour guide. One thing is certain. The people alive in Jesus' day, they sure didn't miss the point. His enemies didn't whiff on Jesus' intentions. They knew exactly why Jesus came. From the outset of His ministry, Jesus was a threat to the powers that be. He challenged their authority. While on earth, Jesus upset the apple cart. He shook the Jewish status quo. You remember, He tossed the temple merchandisers out on their ear. He ran roughshod over legalism and ritualism to expose it for the straw boss that it was. He humiliated the religious scholars With insightful answers to their stage to stump questions. Jesus called the pompous Pharisees hypocrites and whitewashed tombs and sons of hell. Author Jim Gillis, he sums up the first century perception. He says, no man ever made more trouble than the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Realize, Jesus didn't come to fit in. Man, he came to take over. He didn't tow the line. He drew a line in the sand. Jesus came to be boss of the neighborhood. And this made the establishment so uncomfortable that they consorted with the Romans to plot His execution. Dorothy Sayers, she writes this about Jesus. To those who knew Him, He had a daily beauty in His life that made us ugly. And officialdom felt that the established order of things would be more secure without Him. So they did away with God in the name of peace and quiet. In fact, when the executioners led Jesus to the hill called Calvary, you might have thought He was going away quietly. In reality, He had one final battle to fight. Jesus took on the fiercest fiends of darkness, and He triumphed over them all. Satan He crushed, death He defeated, hell He conquered, the grave He opened. And again, what was his motive? Well, listen to Philippians chapter 2. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess... That Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus rose from the dead to be Lord of every person in heaven, in hell, and even on earth. In Paul's New Testament letters, he refers to Jesus by an interesting title. The apostle calls him the last Adam. You remember in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he gave dominion or the responsibility to rule to the first man, Adam. But the first Adam blew it. He sinned and he forfeited his God-given dominion. I've heard it said, the problem in the Garden of Eden was not the apple on the tree, but the pear on the ground. In disobeying God, Adam and Eve asserted their own independence. They chose to be their own God. It reminds me of the patient in the insane asylum. The psychiatrist asked him, he said, So, you say that you're Napoleon Bonaparte? The patient said, I am. The doctor said, Well, how do you know? The patient kind of bristled up. He answered dogmatically. He said, Because God told me. All of a sudden, a voice from down the hall shouted out, I did not. It's sad, but lots of supposedly sane folks live their lives as if they were God. As if they were their own Lord. They make their own decisions and call their own shots without ever consulting with the God who created them and who knows what's best for them. They forget all the problems in the world today started when a man and a woman made that very same mistake. I once read about a family occupying a house in West Palm Beach, Florida. They gave permission to a television show to film using their front yard as the backdrop for the television episode of B.L. Stryker. This was an action-packed cops and robbers shoot 'em up series. Apparently it wasn't very good because it wasn't on very long. It was supposed to be Burt Reynolds' swan song. Well, the film crew set up in the front yard, and before long, cars were crashing in the driveway. The yard was getting blown up. The action had begun. When all of a sudden, out of the blue, the owner of the house called from New York, asking what in the world was happening to his house. He had been tipped off by a neighbor. It turns out the folks who gave permission to use the house were not the owners at all. They were merely tenants. They were just renting the house. They had no right to allow the property to be destroyed. And this is what has happened to planet earth. Mankind has forgotten that we're just tenants. God is the owner. We have no rights of our own. In fact, our very lives were paid for by the blood of Jesus. We've been bought with a price. Jesus went to the cross to lay claim to you, to be Lord of your life. We have no right to rent out the yard or to sell our soul for our own purposes, not without God's permission. You see, when Jesus came to earth, it was like the owner from New York returning to the house in West Palm Beach. He wasn't pleased with what he saw. Jesus cleaned house. He restored order to the neighborhood. When Adam rebelled from God and went his own way, nature followed suit. Sin stained God's creation. Without her father God, Mother Nature went nuts. Even today, hurricanes bust up shorelines. Tornadoes ravage trailer parks. Babies are born with birth defects. Untreatable cancers torture innocent folks, even kids. You might say the front yard has been shot up and practically destroyed. The world we live in today is not what its owner had in mind. It's a world of our own making. Don't blame it on God. The suffering that surrounds us, the pain we experience, is a reminder of our rebellion. And yet what the first Adam damaged, the last Adam came to repair and to redeem. When Jesus performed miracles, they were meant to prove that He had the strength to one day right all the wrongs, to fix a broken world. When He manipulated the molecules in the bread and the fish to multiply, not decay, or when He cursed the fig tree, He was showing His ability to alter the course of nature. When He calmed the storm or walked on water, He was proving He had the power to tame the chaos in nature. When He healed the sick and exhibited His mastery over disease, He was proving He had the cure for nature. Perhaps Jesus' greatest claim to lordship was His ability to forgive sins. Only God can issue pardons. C.S. Lewis observed, Jesus went about saying to people, I forgive your sins. Now it is quite natural for a man to forgive something you do to him. Thus, if somebody cheats me out of five dollars, it is reasonable for me to say, I forgive him. We will say no more about it. But what on earth do you say if somebody cheated you out of five dollars and I said, that's okay, I forgive him. I mean, a sin is an infraction against God. It's an assault on His authority. That's why only God can forgive sins. And this is where the Jews took offense. In Luke 7 verse 49, they questioned Jesus. Who is this who even forgives sins? In other words, who does this guy think he is? Only God can do what he claims. And yet that was exactly the point. Jesus was God. The last Adam took back the dominion that the first Adam had lost. The rightful owner of the universe took back control over nature and disease and even angels and demons. When the angels appeared to minister to Jesus, it was apparent that He was Lord of Heaven. When He cast out demons, could anyone doubt He was Lord over hell? And finally, when Jesus conquered the ultimate foe, when He escaped the sickle of the grim reaper, the corruption of death, He proved once and for all by His resurrection that He is not a man to be trifled with. Jesus is Lord. He is the Master of the universe. On a late night flight, an airplane hit some strong turbulence. Lightning flashed. It shook. It rocked the aircraft. It felt like the plane was about to come apart at the seams. One frightened older lady, she was sitting next to a pastor. He had introduced himself earlier. She reached over and she started shaking him. And She said, please, pastor, can't you do something about this storm? The pastor responded, sorry, ma'am, but I'm in sales, not management. That's right. Hey, while on earth, Jesus demonstrated that He had taken over management. He was the King of creation. This morning, Jesus wants us to acknowledge His Lordship. Jesus wants us to place our lives under His management. Certainly, Jesus cares about our needs. He is a friend indeed. But He's not content with just being your buddy, or your partner, or your homie. Or the man upstairs. Jesus will never be satisfied until he is your boss. Jesus is the boss, but you know, that doesn't mean he's bossy. And Jesus is in charge, but that doesn't make him pushy. Jesus came to be king, but a different kind of king. He's a dictator, all right, but Jesus is a benevolent dictator. He demands exclusive rights to every aspect of my life. But then when I give it to Him, He does all He can to build up my life and make it better and fill it with blessing. Jesus is the commandant. He commands us. But He does so with love and gentleness and kindness. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus invites the burned out, the stressed out, the bummed out. He says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you been living under a heavy burden? Has your life become a load? Jesus invites us to come to Him. He's gentle. He's able to find us rest. And Jesus' instructions in Matthew 11 are simple. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You see, a yoke was a wooden harness that interlocked two pairs of animals. It connected the animals to a plow. And the farmer would use the yoke to steer his plow and till up his field. What's interesting though, is that the animals were used and paired together in a very novel manner. Usually a young ox was yoked together with an older, stronger ox, more mature ox. The yoke was designed to distribute most of the weight onto the older ox, while the young guy, he just kind of went along for the ride. The full-grown ox carried most of the burden, while the newbie just sort of learned to stay in step and was submissive. Now remember in Matthew 13, verse 55, Jesus was called the carpenter's son. But that Greek word, Translated carpenter is an interesting word because it implied a particular type. Not a framer, but a craftsman. It spoke of someone who built furniture or who fashioned tools, maybe even yokes. There's an ancient tradition that says Joseph's, Jesus' stepdad, his follow, his specialty was that of animal harnesses. In fact, supposedly a sign hung over the door of their carpenter shop there in Nazareth that read, The best fitting yokes made here. Now, even after Jesus leaves home, He's still crafting yokes. For this is Jesus' desire for you. You see, to come to Jesus is to accept His yoke. It requires us to harness ourselves to Him. The person yoked to Jesus No longer calls his own shots. He's taken the bit. Jesus now has the reins. His goal is to stay yoked to Jesus and let Him lead. And yet here's what's so beautiful. Jesus relates to us in a way where most of the burden falls on Him. The weight is on His shoulders. Our job is to simply stay in step. Just don't spit out the bit. Let the master steer. In Matthew 11, Jesus even calls Himself gentle and lowly in heart. Yes, He expects us to remain harnessed to Him. But this means He won't set a pace that we can't handle. He'll shift only enough weight onto us to make us stronger, to build muscle, not cause our collapse. To know Jesus is to bow my stiff neck and accept His yoke. And once I do, he takes the pressure off me and he puts it on him. His yoke is always a perfect fit. In Matthew 12 verse 20, Jesus makes another statement that affirms that though he's the boss, he's far from bossy. Jesus says of himself, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. In essence, Jesus is no tyrant. He's a kind and gentle ruler. You know, the strategy of most kings is to crush their subjects. It's to keep them underfoot. It's to rule them with a rod of iron. This was especially true of Roman emperors and baseball umpires. That's right. Yep, as a little league coach, I had a run-in or two with a few umpires. I offered to purchase them eyewear. I was concerned about them driving a car. You know, it's dangerous to drive when you're blind as a bat. But it never failed. Whenever I argued with an umpire, I lost. Why? Because umpires like to flex their muscle. They like to put you in your place. They like to show you that you're not the boss. They are. They're quick to remind you that they got the power. And yet, to the contrary, Jesus is the one person... With all the power. And yet he's never pushy with that power. He finds the bruised reed. And rather than crush it, he props it up. And he supports it and he nurses it back to health. He finds the dwindling embers. And rather than let them die out, he blows on them. And he rekindles a blaze. Jesus finds the person who's down for the count. And rather than bury them, he loves them. And he lifts them up. You see, the goal of Jesus is not to keep you in your place. It's to help you find a place where you can blossom and be fruitful. He wants to heal your hurts and elevate your status and share His glory and fuel your strength. He is a Lord who blesses, not suppresses. Jesus uses His power not to push us around, but to pick us up. He is a splint to the bruised reed. He is a flint. To the dwindling fire. The risen Lord Jesus comes to people who are bent over and helps them stand tall again. He comes to the burned out and He rekindles a passion. Hey, Jesus comes and He says to us, I love you just as you are, but I love you so much I'm not going to let you stay that way. He's Lord now. Jesus has no desire to make any suggestions. He's not into making suggestions. He'll do nothing else in your life but rule. He takes you and frees you and then shapes you and makes you better. But you can't spit the bit. Your job is to stay yoked. Stay harnessed to the master. Seek to stay in step. Once a young Dutch soldier was stationed in the jungles of Indonesia. During his tour, he bought an ape. This monkey became a pet, not only of the soldier, but the entire barracks. After a few weeks, though, the soldier noticed that whenever he touched the gibbon around his waist, it would wince. It was painful. Upon closer examination, he noticed that a raised welt stretched all the way around the ape's midsection. When he pulled the hair apart, he found the problem. As a baby, someone had tied a piece of wire around the gibbon's waist. And so as the ape grew up, the wire had cut into his skin and had become embedded in his flesh. That night, the soldiers, they laid the monkey on the table and they operated. They took a razor, and they shaved a swath around his belly. And then they slowly cut into his tender flesh. It was obviously painful, but the monkey seemed to understand. He laid there on the table, patiently believing that the soldiers were acting in his best interests when the wire was finally snipped and slid from the, out from under his skin, all of a sudden, the ape jumped up and started dancing around on his owner's shoulders. From that moment onward, the man and his monkey were inseparable friends. Later, this Dutch soldier, he said that the experience marked a turning point for him personally. At the time, he wasn't a Christian. And he was deeply marred in a lifestyle of sin. You could say... He'd been monkeying around. A chain of guilt was squeezing him, and cutting into his happiness. He longed to be free and joyous again. And after serious thought, he surrendered his life to Jesus. And the Lord performed heart surgery. He cut into his flesh and he pried out some harmful habits. It was painful, but the operation was necessary. And it released him from his sin so he could dance again. Hey, perhaps you're longing for a similar release. You have a band of guilt choking the life out of you. Oh, come to Jesus, my friend. Lay it all at His feet. Let Him snip the guilt and set you free and get your feet to dancing again. Jesus is the boss who is never bossy. A small boy, he was sitting in church one Sunday with his mom The pastor was preaching a sermon entitled, What is a Christian? Well, this pastor, he knew how to stir a crowd. And as he spoke, you know, the crowd just kind of grew with intensity. Numerous times he would pound his fist on the pulpit and he would ask the question, Brethren, what is a Christian? Well, as the tension mounted, the little boy got scared. He turned to his mom and he whispered, he said, Do you know, Mom? Do you know what a Christian is? His mom, she patted him on the knee and said, yes, dear, I I know. Now, you sit still and you, you be quiet. But the boy just couldn't sit still. The passion in the room was just too great. As the preacher closed his sermon that Sunday, his voice thundered again, what is a Christian? This time, the little boy, he just couldn't stand it any longer. He jumped up in the pew and he shouted at the top of his lungs, tell him, mama, please tell him. Well, this morning, it's my God given responsibility to define for you a real Christian. And it's an easy task. Though the ramifications of it extend to the heavens, the reality of it could not be simpler. A Christian is a person who has the bit in his mouth, he's yoked to Jesus Christ, a blood bought forever forgiven, heaven-bound Christian is the person who has turned the ultimate say in his life over to Jesus. He is the person who has embraced Him as Lord. I'm afraid there are too many people in the church today who've been thrown a curveball here. They've struck out on this crucial truth. Jesus died and rose and lives again to be Lord. Lord. Not just your friend, not just your Savior, but to be Lord. Don't assume that you're going to get to heaven just because you walked the aisle as a child. Don't assume that just because you signed a membership card, that's going to get you in heaven. Or that you got baptized sometime in your past, or you took a communion, or you went to a confessional, or you even won a pen, a high, an attendance pen from church, you went so much. Don't think that's what's going to get you to heaven. Don't think that even you asking Jesus to forgive your sins is going to get you to heaven. Of course, you should pray such a prayer and ask for forgiveness. Just know that Jesus doesn't forgive who Jesus doesn't control. You've got to embrace Him as Lord. You've got to turn your life over to Jesus. He died and rose and lives today to be Lord. Baptist pastor Vance Havner once wrote, I came to Christ as a country boy. I didn't understand all the plan of salvation, but one thing I did understand, even as a lad, I understood that I was under new management. I belonged to Christ, and He was Lord. The reason Jesus Christ came to earth and died on a Roman cross, and three days later rose from a buried grave. And the reason He's coming back again is not just to bless, not just to heal, not even just to forgive us of our sins. No, He died and rose and lives today to be our Lord. And so I ask you, will you surrender your life to Jesus today? Will you make Him the Lord of your life? Will you trust Him enough to take the bit? And tie your life to his reins. This Easter Sunday. Will you embrace Jesus. As the living Lord of your life. Let's all pray. Father we thank you. For your word today. That to this end. You died. You rose. And you're coming again. To be our Lord. I pray for those here this morning. Who have heard that prayer. Who've heard that word today. And Lord they've been to church. They've been to church more times than they can count. They've, they've even gotten involved in church. In different ways. But they know in their heart of hearts. That they're still living their life as they please. That they've included a little religion here and there, but they're still the captain of their ship. They're still running the show. And because of it, there, there is a pain in their life, there's a bondage, there's that wire that cuts into their, their flesh and that hurts. They know they're not free. They've subjected themselves to to misery and to pain because of their insistence on doing things their way. Lord, I pray for that person today. I pray, Lord, that you'd single them out of the crowd this morning. That you'd lay your hand upon their heart. You'd let them know that, that yes, you're the boss. But you love them. And that you care about them. And you want to do a miracle in their life today. But they have to surrender their life to you. As our heads are bowed while our eyes are closed. If that's you this morning. If you'd say, Pastor Sandy, that's me. You know, I, I, I've prayed a thousand times. But, but I've still held on. I've never really surrendered my life to Jesus. I've never made Him my Lord. But I need to today. If that's your heart's prayer, I'd like for you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you just to slip it up, keep it up until I recognize it. Anybody here that would say, yes, that's me, and I'd like for you to pray for me this morning. Anybody would say that? Great, I see your hand. Great. We had three or four people in the first service. I see your hand in the back. Great. Anybody else? You know, I want you to pray for me, Pastor Sandy. That's me. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. I see your hand. Great. Yep, two more in the balcony. Great. I see your hand back up in the, in the balcony. Anybody else? Oh, it's so great that you're, that you're releasing it. It's so great that you're turning it over to Him this morning. So great. Anybody else? Say yes, I, I want you to pray for me. I see your hand. That's great. Good. Good. Anybody else? Great. Okay, all of you that raise your hand. I'm, I'm going to pray a prayer and you can just repeat right after me, okay? Just repeat after me and we're going to pray this prayer and we're going to settle this thing this morning between us and Jesus. We're going to invite Him into our lives and make Him the Lord of our life today. Dear Lord Jesus, thank You for loving me Thank you for dying and rising again. And that makes you Lord. That makes you the boss. And yet I've been doing things my way. And I'm sorry. And I ask you to forgive me this morning. And I turn the reins of my life over to you. You lead me Lord. Lord, I'll do what You want me to do. Lord Jesus, I pledge myself to follow You today. Please forgive me. Please take over my life and live Your life in me. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.